Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 328 featuring Dimitri Vinik, technical director and supervisor, also known as Silhouette Images. Believe it or not, I have known Dimitri from the early, early, early like early days of V-Ray, back before it was even a product, uh, I think he and I might be the original fanboys of V-Ray. Like if I'm going to go the far, as far back as, as that. And we actually knew each other and uh, quite a bit, you know, back back in the early, early 2000s in terms of what was going on there. So it was kind of fun to check it out and talk to him about all the cool stuff going on. Kristen, what do you, besides the fact that you hear the two oldest fanboys of V-Ray talking about the cool old days of the early 2000s, uh, what did you think of this? podcast um it was great uh yeah you guys discuss b-ray a lot and i love that um <laughs> and we just get to like kind of hear his like story from like how an early age like it was in russia and then to canada kind of was interested in gaming and graphics and then progressed his film school and mm-hmm. he's worked on like Battlestar Galactica, the TV show Tron Legacy, to Game of Thrones. Um, right. And also how he's kind of brought V-Ray to each studio he's worked at, and they've had great results. So that was awesome. And then at the end, you guys talk about kind of the work from home situation and how they're dealing with that um, and future technology. So it's just a great podcast. Super yeah, it was fun. a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun hanging out with uh, Dimitri. I mean, uh, like, I'm, like I said, we used to hang hang out well we used to chat a lot quite a bit on the v-ray forums long long before that and it was kind of funny running into at sigraf you know many years later and he goes hey it's dimitri and i was like i didn't know who he was because he goes by silhouette <laughs> images on the yeah, on like- his on thing and so yeah i finally like oh that's who you are and then so yeah dimitri and i go way back and so he's been a great contributor uh not just you know obviously to 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 chaos as well because he's been giving us a huge amount of feedback and a lot of the features and stuff comes from those guys who really sort of know how to use the software. So thank you so much for being such a great uh, uh, friend to, to, to us, uh, Dimitri, but obviously, you know, being able to hang out with us and finally be able to share your story on the podcast. So it's a lot of fun. Okay, let's talk about some events going on at Chaos. Kristen, what is going on? All right. So you can find these out at chaos.com slash events. The first one will be June 8th. We talked about this last week. It is exploring V-Ray 5 for 3DS Max with Jonas Noel. Um, mm-hmm. You get to discover new features of V-Ray for 3DS Max, uh, plus workflow tips from an expert user. And Perfect. then on June 9th, this will be an online one as well. Uh, it's a new product announcement webinar um, for SketchUp Studio um, and V-Ray 5 for SketchUp, and it will be held in Japanese. So you can sign up online for those. Perfect. That sounds great. Uh, we don't have any uh, quick announcements right now on chaos.com, but those will be coming soon. So keep an eye on all that news by going to chaos.com. Uh, if people want to know more about the podcast, Kristen, where can they go? You can go to facebook.com slash podcast or chaos.com slash cggarage. And if you want to watch us on YouTube, you can go to youtube.com dash chaosgrouptv. Perfect. And if you guys have any ideas or, or things you want to do uh, or, or, you know, any ideas for the podcast at all, just email us labs at chaosgroup.com. I uh, would love to hear your ideas. If you want to have uh, different guests or new guests or uh, you have some feedback on any particular episode, we'd love to hear about it. And of course, don't forget to leave us a review on Apple podcast. Uh, and that's always welcome and share us with your friends. Okay. Uh, that being said, please enjoy this awesome podcast with my good friend and good friend of the company, Dimitri Vinik. 
Welcome to another CG Garage Where the chaos group talks You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops We're gonna fire off rays In high dynamic range We know that ambient occlusion is passe Global illumination won't lead you astray And while image-based lighting is really swell you need to make sure everything has for now. Uh, I was trying to think, Mitri, how long we've known each other, and it has to be since at least, in, in terms of us communicating with each other, at least 2001, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's what comes to mind. 2001 yeah. or two, something like that. Yeah, and uh, I think we should uh, explain to people like where we first met, uh, which was on the, the Chaos Group forum, which was the V-Ray forum at the time, right? Yeah. 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 And uh, I think the first time I saw you in person was at a SIGGRAPH and you came up to me and say, hi, Dmitri. It's like, okay, Dmitri. And it's like, you know me as <laughs> Silhouette Imaging. <laughs> I was like, oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. I remember that. I remember that it was really cool. So, so this is a, it's really interesting. So it's like you said, we've 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 always we run into each other at SIGGRAPH all the time, and we've been knowing each other for a long time, and we've actually uh, been very very much uh, part of the early days of uh, V-Ray, and uh, you know we've we worked with Vlado quite a bit. But let's go back a little bit. I want to know a little bit of your back history. How did you how did you get into uh, computer graphics? What got your your passion into all this stuff? Yeah, I mean, uh, I used to like, uh, I grew up uh, in former Soviet Union. Uh huh. So, um, you know, computers were like a rare thing. Okay. And then my parents ended up going to the United States of America in 89. In 89. Wow. In 89. Yeah. And they mm -hmm. brought back, they brought back a PC, which okay. was, which was a 286. It's the number of the CPU it had. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it had like 8-bit graphics and just like, you know, and I loved it. Like, I, I just, I couldn't get enough of it. So, since then, I was kind of like really involved into like games and just like I really liked um, the cinematic looks of the games. Not... Like, I mean, I liked, I enjoyed playing games, but the cinematic part is what really like got me sort of excited. Like, like the stories, came, the stories, but also like how cool it looked. Right. I just, I just loved like, cause the games back in the nineties, they were like pretty primitive in terms of like graphics. Like what, what kind of games are you talking about? Like space quest and those types of games, <laughs> police quest. Um, so the very first one I played was like Wolfenstein. Castle oh yeah. Wolfenstein. That was a 3d game. <laughs> yeah. Right. But I mean, like it was pretty, I mean, it was awesome in the day. Like it was great. Right. Yeah. But, um, I think like Starcraft is what I remember playing. And this was the game that kind of has turned the tide for me to start thinking like, how can I do something like that? Like, this is super cool. And Blizzard was just pretty much innovating in terms of like all these cinematics that they were putting out with Warcraft, with Starcraft, with um, Diablo and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think I was like, I must've been like 15 or 16 years old. Uh, 
so old enough to understand that they must be using some kind of software, right? And it wasn't mm. Photoshop. Right. Um, <laughs> and so I got a 3ds Max 2, I think. Was it Max or and was it before, was it still in DOS? It was called 3ds, 3ds Studio 2. Oh, so it's the one in DOS, not Max, right? So, yeah. Yeah, like pretty old, right? Uh-huh. And I opened it and I was like, all right, here I go. And then that was it, right? Because there was no Google, there was no internet. Like you couldn't just go in and, and, you know, YouTube and watch how do you make stuff, right? Right, So, right. So I basically like, I figured out how to take like screenshots of the cinematics, like when they were playing back. So I took like screenshots of whatever I liked. And then I tried to like load that up in, in Max and make something similar. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's how the process started. So I, I was basically just clicking every button I could to figure out like how do you move a vertex? How do you move a face? Wow. How do you put a texture? Couldn't couldn't figure out how to put a texture on. So I like traced and modeled like parts that were textural and stuff back. Yeah. So that's how it wow. started. Uh -huh. Yeah. That's interesting. That's interesting. I remember I remember when I was uh in architecture school, uh, and uh, I was helping this uh, 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 another student, and she was trying to mo uh, she was trying to do uh, in architecture. She was trying to do chain link fence, right? And the way that you would do it back then would do a plane, and you put a texture of a chain link fence with opacity on it because that was the best way. She literally modeled all the chain link, <laughs> and I said, "Oh my god!" She goes, "It took me forever." I was like, "Yeah, I bet." <laughs> What software was that in? That was in AutoCAD. Oh, okay. <laughs> Can you imagine how painful that was? So when you're saying yeah. you're trying to model textures, like it's like, yeah, that's that's painful. <laughs> yeah, there was this like spacecraft. They called them, I think, Wrath or something. It was uh -huh. like this was like a fighter, uh -huh. and it had like a skull with bones on the side of it. Uh huh. And I was like, I want that. So I just like, I drew it with splines and extruded it out. And <laughs> nice. It probably looked really great. And he probably learned a whole lot from it, huh? Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and after that, um, my parents were like, because I was basically just like finishing high school and they were like, and you were still you, you were go? still in the Soviet Union at this. No, I guess. No, it was, no, I was Russia, already huh? in Canada. Are you in Canada? Then. When did you move yeah. to Canada? This was like 1997. Okay. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so I was pretty much finishing high school and they were like, where are you gonna go? And I said, I like doing this stuff. So they took me to Art Institute of Seattle. Mm -hmm. um, and they're like, hey, you wanna go and study there? But then, because right. it, was, it was in the States, right? And mm -hmm. so for me, that, that would mean like completely moving to Seattle for a while. And then somebody recommended Vancouver Film School. Mm. And it was local, it was close, like I could commute there and, you know, obviously financially it was more, made more sense. Right. So I just went there instead. Right. Uh, yeah. That's a good school. It's a really good school. Yeah. 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 It Excellent. was famous, world famous. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very good school. Now, did they have much 3D and, and computer graphics back then? Yeah, they did. I mean, it, it's probably not like right now, I think. Right now, all of it would be like focused on whether it's, you know, it's probably, they probably have like categories now of like 
Or you're a modeler, a sculptor, sure. an animator, so on, right? A compositor. Right, right, right. But back then it was like pretty primitive. It was like, hey, here's a couple of months course. <laughs> yep. Couple yeah. of months course crash uh, crash course on Maya and uh, off you go. <laughs> right. Right. Is that the first place you picked up Maya as I guess at, uh, at, at school? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I came in there like a hardcore Max guy. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're like, no, 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 Max. No, we use Maya here. Right. I was like, okay. So mm-hmm. then I learned a bit of Maya and then I was like, well, both software are powerful. Right. So I'm going to be using both. And that's, that's been the case for the last 20 years. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember very, very specifically, you know, we'll get into the V-Ray thing, but I remember very specifically uh, we were, well, now let's, let's continue with the story. Actually, I'll, I'll get to that point. So, 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 so this is around 97, you go to school, uh, you started studying uh, Maya and you're doing that stuff. So what happened when you got out of school? Did you, what was your, did you get a job at some place or start <clears throat> freelancing? Yeah. So th- um, what I did is I actually took a two course. They had like these package course deals. Okay. Um, and it was life drawing slash hand-drawn animation. Oh, nice. And that went on for a year. And then for another six months, it was the 3D. Mm-hmm. And uh, so for the first year, I learned live drawing. I learned uh, hand-drawn animation, like basically cell. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it was pretty difficult. It was pretty hard. You know, mm. there were like people in the class who were much better than me, like who were much more artistic. Um, I never really liked like drawing animation. I always liked like detailed stuff. So I would like draw one picture of like, let's say a cyborg, but that was like super detailed. And all of the guys in my class, they were more like traditional animators who could like draw loose concepts really fast. And they had like really good understanding of that stuff. Right. And so for me, like I kind of struggled with that a little bit. And Mm -hmm. um, when I went to 3D, because I already knew a bit of 3D before, like just on my own, it was much easier for me to kind of like understand that. So when I uh, left school, uh, I was like, all right, I'm prepared. I got all this experience, you know, um, doing whatever in 3D and drawing. And this was uh, late 90s. And I think there was some kind of like crisis happening. Mm. And basically there was no work. Mm-hmm. There was no work and so many people looking for work in the art field, in games, in visual effects that uh, nobody wanted a student, you know, someone fresh out of school right? Uh, who doesn't have any experience. Everybody was like, where is your demo reel? Where is your like professional right. experience? And I was like, I, I'm a student. I don't have any. Um, and so it took me about a year of like really messing about to find a job. And during that year, I was just like learning more on a computer all the time, just experimenting with more rendering, more. This is sort of like what I understood that I like best is to like texture render stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, I got a job with like an architectural firm. Okay. And they did like um, just, just architectural renderings. Yep. So for me, it was like, doesn't matter like i'll i'll do that it wasn't what i wanted to do like i wanted to work in the film industry mm-hmm. uh but there was the job that was available it was a close proximity to what i wanted to do yeah um and that was at the time when v-ray first came out 
Right. Yes. Uh, I think before we were using like scanline, basically. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, or ray tracing on top of it or something of that nature. Yeah. No. Yeah. So like, I think the very first project of mine, I mapped stuff on cards with opacity. Oh, right. Because it just couldn't, the computers couldn't handle it. And right. so then V-Ray came out and I came to my boss and I was like, hey, check this out. This looks really great. Mm -hmm. They're like, yeah, let's get it. So, um, so then started like rendering V-Ray a lot. And um, then I left that company after about a year. Yep. Um, and I went to work for um, another smaller studio, which is called Bardell Entertainment. Okay. Uh, and what they did was uh, they did like 3D cartoons. Okay. So it was like cartoon um, animation, but it was all animated in Maya and then like do like basic tune shading mm -hmm. um, and rendered it um, in, in Maya Scanline. So I worked there for a bit and that, and then um, I found a job at uh, this place called Enigma Studios and they did, they had Battlestar season one. Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. 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 And so I was like, yeah, th th to me, it didn't really matter. But I was getting like closer into like TV and film land. And this mm -hmm. was my kind of goal. And so I came there and um, they asked me to basically take the models, which were done in Lightwave. Like everything was done from pilot. Uh, yeah. Zoic did, did the whole thing. Yeah. And then um, converted to their Max and Brazil pipeline. Okay. Because Brazil at the time was like considered like the top stuff, you know, the quality and stuff. Yeah. So after rendering for a bit in Brazil, I came to my then supervisor and I was like, hey, th there's this other renderer of V-Ray. It's much faster. It's so much going to be so much better. You have to understand that like Lightwave, it had some kind of feature with gi uh, like ginormous geometry yes. handling where you could have like, Hundreds of millions of polygons, it didn't care. It could render it. Yeah, because it instanced you know? things really intelligently at that time. Yeah. S something like that. And yeah. back then, computers had like very little RAM. Two gigs maximum. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> and like Windows XP or like whatever Windows there was, like couldn't even use all of it. Right. So we had a hard time rendering this stuff in Brazil, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, so um, they're like, okay, let's try V-Ray. So we got uh, like one copy of V-Ray. Uh, and um, right away, like we could render stuff with V-Ray where we couldn't with, with Brazil. Interesting. So then they're like, okay, let's go with V-Ray. And um, we, we started doing stuff in, in Max and V-Ray and our stuff started looking so much better than the Lightwave stuff. That actually, that created a problem where the, the show supervisor came and was like, your stuff looks great, but it doesn't match what other vendors are doing. Right. So then we ran into a bit of an issue with that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that can happen. I can imagine. Yeah. But that was a great show. So. That was a great show. And the effects on it were really cool. And I think those were really, was, that's, that's kind of an awesome show to be involved in, I'm sure. Yeah, as a first like film TV production for myself, definitely. And I mean, there was definitely drawbacks to using Max uh, back in the day and, and V-Ray 2, to be honest, because like there was no layering, no frame buffer. 
uh, yep. AOVs. There was not, none of that. And Lightwave had a lot of that already built in. Yep. So we were really like struggling. I think V-Ray wasn't even the version one. I think it was like 09 or something. Right. Uh, and I clearly remember that day where you came in and you made them implement the V-Ray buffer outputs. All <laughs> right. Yeah, I think I remember, I remember reading an article or something like that. And I was like, yeah, finally, somebody convinced them to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, well, we should, you know, it was funny because you and I definitely had some influences on the uh, on the company uh, throughout, you know, its history as we were working on it. But I do remember very specifically because, you know, the, the, the V-Ray forum uh, has been and still is, uh, you know, very active in terms of people supporting each other, et cetera, et cetera. But you and I, I think, were the only people at that time that were talking about Maya, because <laughs> everyone yeah. else was like, "Why would Maya's not? What you don't need Maya?" I was like, mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. "Yeah, sometimes you do." And so yeah. it was a thing that, like, I'm not saying Max is bad. I mean, like you're like me, like Max and, and Maya are two different packages. They all have their advantages, but we needed it. And I remember we were like the first ones to sort of like say, "Okay, let's let's start." figuring out how we're going to get V-Ray and, and, and Maya going as well. But I remember that frame buffer thing. It was specifically because of what I had been doing in RenderMan at the time. I was like, V-Ray needs to be able to do these outputs because I didn't really see the, uh, you know, in the early days of visual effects, I didn't really see the need for AOVs, right? And then when I saw it in RenderMan, I was like, oh, yeah, this is cool. <laughs> this yeah. is really helpful, you know? And so, yeah, I think, I, you know, I, uh, you know, I convinced Vlado and, and, uh, to start implementing. And this is back when it was still just, I think it was just Peter and Vlado. It was two people for the whole company. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a pretty big step, to be honest. Oh, yeah, huge step. Yeah. Huge step. Yeah. And I think in the future, it actually paid dividends big time. Yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. And, and you know, the thing is, that's cool about it. And it's still to this day, Vlado, Vlado listens to, to people, <laughs> listens to what people have to say and is interested in their ideas. So, uh, which is a very, very cool thing because uh, it's very useful to have those, that information. So, well, cool. Okay. So Battlestar Galactica, uh, how long were you working on that for? For about a year. Okay. Um, so we worked on the first season and then um, that show was over and that company that I worked for, they worked on a couple of smaller like B-rated features. Um, and I think this was like 2004, 2005 uh -huh. that um, I decided that I'm going to go and look for work at like a bigger studio because okay. I was always working at like a smaller studios. Just a couple of people, which was really a lot of fun. You know, you get to know people very closely mm -hmm. and you spend long hours with them. So like you get to trust them and you learn from each other. But I also felt that like I wanted to go to a bigger facility like um, Image Engine, which was um, I think around 25 people at the time. And I had mm -hmm. a lot of my... Uh, Colleagues from Vancouver Film School, they ended up going there. Right. Um, so I reached out and they were like, yeah, come on over. So I came over and I ran into a bit of a problem right away because I was used to working in a small studio. And so like, you know, you get like five people working in the show. Everybody's doing their thing and everybody trusts each other. So, you know, if one guy is doing animation, you know, he's going to do a good job. 
and you don't kind of like tell them like, oh, this isn't working or whatever. But when I came to a bigger studio, there were like a lot of segregation, you know, um, and I ran into a problem where I had some opinions about how things should be done and like people were like, meh, we're not going to listen to you, you know. Um, and so right away, like I, I felt like the scale of the company didn't care about the personal opinions of artists, even if they were good, you right. know. Um, and at, at the time, Imagine was using Maya and Mentoray, and they were struggling with the memory and all that stuff. And I tried to suggest V-Ray to them, but they brushed me off like right away, just like forget about it. Not right. gonna, it's not a production tool. And so I had a bit of arguments with them about that. Right. And I don't think they've ever actually implemented V-Ray into their pipeline, even, even today. I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah, I think they went with 3D Light, and uh, after that, probably Arnold, and that was right. that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But Image Engine's still around. It's still a pretty, pretty well, uh, you know, respected company in, in inside Vancouver yeah. for sure. Yeah, so. they they are, and they do great work. Um, and you know, when, when like I'm can't really speak for 3D Light. It, it's a variant of RenderMan, and yeah, it's a RenderMan clone. <laughs> practically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think they ran into some problems there, actually. Yeah, yeah they even just read rib files, so it's pretty much random. Yeah, account, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you probably won't be able to get away with that today. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how they. But maybe they had a deal. Maybe they licensed stuff. I don't know. But I'm I'm pretty sure they were using Arnold like after a point. So sure, uh, it just kind of made sense. If they don't go V-Ray, they're probably gonna go Arnold. Right. Right. So, right. Yeah, and right now, like they, they're really big. I don't know about right now, but like before the crisis and all that stuff, like there were hundreds of people, I think a couple of hundred for sure. So, right. Okay. Yeah. So you, you didn't so, stay at Image Engine too long, it sounds like. No. I, and I mean, like we worked on Stargate and a couple of feature films. Um, right. And like my experience was going up. So um, I think they were also looking for work. And they kind of said like, hey, we don't know if we have enough work coming up. So I went and I started looking and I got a job at Zoic. Um, Zoic in Vancouver. Zoic was, yeah. And mm -hmm. Zoic was also using Maya and Mentore and I was trying to push Viri there and they actually went for it. And in the beginning, like it wasn't like all working correctly, but I think like after a while, Zoic was all with Viri. Like, uh, even after I left, they, they began to like fully utilizing it. I think it was also the time when Mentory was dying off mm -hmm. uh, and the development was kind of just stopping on Mentory. Like a lot of plugins in Mentory were just like abandoned and it was like complete disarray. Like nobody knew what was going on. Um, but there was also a period at Image Engine where I learned a lot of Mentory and there was a lot of good features in it. Like the Mentoray render engine was pretty good engine. It was very flexible, even though you could push it into like non-photorealistic, non-physical dimension. Uh, I remember writing, like creating a custom shader where it would allow me to color correct the shadows of each light separately in the shader. And that was pretty powerful, like the setups that we could do with that, you know? Hmm. And I was like always asking Vlad or, or whatever, like, 
hey, Mentor A has these things. And I don't think he really liked that I was always <laughs> comparing you to Mentor A. <laughs> I don't think he cares, honestly. I think he's like, well, what is a feature that you enjoy? I mean, it's the same thing with me. Like, I was like, hey, you know what? Renderman's got this really cool uh, uh, frame buffer history thing <laughs> where you can record your previous renders and you can flip yeah. between them. And he's like, okay, uh, we'll put that in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there are like... For me, because I became like pretty much like a technical director on the shading level where I mm -hmm. could like really dive in and dissect the nodes and make stuff out of them. Yep. I mean, you're talking about like less than 1% of all artists who will ever do that. Like right. majority of people, they just want like finished stuff, like bring in oh, the yeah, yeah, material, yeah. you know, plug in the texture. It looks great right away. I don't have to care and just render it, right? Well, I, th so, I find it ironic, and I'm sure you do too. I mean, I remember when, when, when V-Ray came about and when people were using it, people would say, you know, V-Ray is too simple. <laughs> like, it needs mm -hmm. to be more complicated. You need to have control over every aspect of the shader. And I was like, mm -hmm. mm, yes, no. I mean, you can get away with it without doing that. And what's funny now is that all the renderers are super simple, and V-Ray is suddenly like, they're saying, well, V-Ray has now got too many options, <laughs> right? And I think it's funny. He was like, yeah, well, it's not that it has too many options. It's always, it's always been flexible in that way, but it's interesting. I, I really like that, though. Like, I, I have, like, one of the reasons I, I stick with V-Ray today even is because of the versatility that now right. it has. Um, and I've worked with other renderers, and I do feel like they're borrowing a lot from from V-Ray, mm -hmm. um, like the user scaler, for example. Um, not many people know what it is. It's such a powerful feature. Yeah. And I remember seeing that in V-Ray for the first time. I actually didn't know what it did. Um, somebody had to explain it to me. And then later, you know, I go to Redshift and bang, same feature. <laughs> it is so similar that you don't even need to like redo anything if you want to change the shader. It reads <laughs> the exact same attribute and everything. So go, go ahead and explain to people what what that what that is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it basically allows you to mark an object with a ID, like a right. number. Yep. And then you can use that number to mask certain parts of it. So. You can assign different colors, or you can switch objects based on the on the object number. And that's like right now with a multi-texture, multi-subtexture, for example, it has a option for texture switch mm -hmm. um, that you plug in the, the user scaler directly into it. And then let's say you have five objects, number them one, two, three, four, five. Mm -hmm. And then in multi-subtexture, you have five different inputs. And so it'll it'll assign those different inputs to the different objects by their number. And right. uh, you know when you're texturing and shading stuff procedurally or just like handling objects procedurally, this is like the absolute best way. I mean, I've integrated this into our pipeline where you have an alembic, like a complex alembic with hundreds of uh, shader IDs, which is what we call them here. It's like uh, shader ID is basically a number that certain objects have. And then in the end, you cache that out and you bring that in and assign a single material. So you assign like a switch material. Yep. 
and then the switch material has a different shaders plugging into it. Yeah. And we have nested switch materials. So we could have like five, six different switch materials. Yep. Each has nine shaders. Yep. And then the user scaler will basically say, okay, object so and so will get this yeah. one and this one. Yeah. Yeah. And and it creates a lot of control and a lot of flexibility. And that's just something to say is but like with robust pipelines like that, I mean it's it's really kind of cool. Like I you know, it, uh, you know, when I was uh, you know working in, in big productions and stuff, like a digital domain, for example, we had a system where you know, when you put the file input, you just put in the word diffuse <laughs> and mm -hmm. it would go to the database and find the published diffused texture for that object. <laughs> and yeah. so if you change it to a different object, it will find a different texture for that other object because everything's yeah. published in the database. So you never really had to go and find a path and do this and do that. So it's like yeah. the same shader would work on both and it would just automatically find the textures that it that's, needed to that's do. That's very similar to what yep. we have here. Yeah. It's almost the same. I mean, it's probably not at that level because we don't have a data database like this. Right. Um, but on comp on the simpler assets, I pretty much never really do that. Right. Um, right now, like we've sort of been utilizing PBR shading a lot. Yep. So Substance will just export a bunch of textures. You plug them in. Done. It kind of looks <laughs> great right away, you yep. know? Uh, and then you do a bit of shading on top of that with a bit of customization and it's done. But um, on the more complex assets, definitely, I would tag all the pieces. So we were doing this show called Astronauts, mm -hmm. and it was like this massive spaceship, which was made out of like, I don't know, dozens of objects. And each object had hundreds, if not thousands of pieces. Right. And I decided that, uh, well, you're not going to assign a shader to every single object. That's just going to be crazy. Right. So the, the spaceship basically comes with these temporary shaders that are basically like Maya viewport blinds. Right. Um, and then in the, on the backside of it, the V-Ray switch material is connected to all the override shaders. Got it. Because the thing is with V-Ray switch material, when you display it in viewport, it's kind of black. Yes. Because Maya doesn't actually know, or V-Ray doesn't know like, what material it's going to display, right? It right. all happens at render time. Yes. So we kind of use Maya viewport materials for previous purposes. Right. Got it. And and then that rendering, it switches. So then we labeled every object, you know, it was like rocket A, B, C, thruster, one, two, three, whatever. And then we just had one material for the entire spaceship. Right. Based on those tags and so on, it found texture sets and it found versions and all that stuff. Um, and that's a really big power from V-Ray that I really enjoy working with on a daily basis is that kind of flexibility. And I know now other renderers also do that. Like I know Redshift does it, uh, Arnold does it. So, Well, yes. I mean, the fact is, right, all these renderers, if, if a studio is going gonna, is gonna to go from one render to another one, they have to maintain... <laughs> feature set so all the renders have to maintain the same feature set right it's kind of like one car puts you know cruise control into that car and then all the other cars have to put cruise control in into their cars too yeah, yeah you know yeah, sure. the different slightly different variations the switches in a different place but they all basically do the same thing so yeah, yeah. and you know what like over the years because of being like V-Ray loyalist, I've gotten so many arguments with people about somebody was like oh Arnold is better or uh -huh. that just looks like V-Ray 
And I, I actually took people on challenge and be like, hey, make me a render and I'll match that render in VRA one-to-one. You will not be able to tell a difference. Well, that's actually a big point because technically speaking, especially when we're talking about full ray tracing, right? Full ray tracing is a mathematical, physically trying to recreate exact things, right? When you're going on a render and you're making them, trying to make them, you know, uh, compare one to the other, if you do your job correctly, they should match 100% (laughs) to each other. One plus one equals two, no matter what calculator you use. (laughs) It's always going to be two, unless you have a really bad calculator, then don't trust that calculator, but it's going to be two. And then you should match. And then the only thing that matters is how long did it take you to get it that to look that way? And how long does it take to render? And that's all that matters, really. So Yeah, and actually, on, on the render time aspect, just very recently, somebody said, uh, we're working on this 4K show, and they were like, oh, is it okay that you render it uh, because, you know, the render time will be crazy? And I said, uh, we, do- we no longer care about render time. And he was like, what? <laughs> yeah. I never heard that before. It's like, because if you're smart and you understand how things work, you don't need a render that ren- you know, renders for 10 hours. Right. But actually on Tron... Um, we did have renders that ran for like 20 hours per yeah. frame. Um, <laughs> we got to talk and, about Tron because I was on Tron too. So, <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting thing because I think we were sharing assets with DD. Yeah. Who, um, where, where were you working at? Which company were you working at the time? I was prime focus. Oh, prime focus. So got it. Yeah. Prime focus ac- acquired frantic films. Yep. Um, and, uh, I was just there during that uh, sort of phase. And Mm -hmm. uh, then later they got to work on Tron. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I came on to help and um, we're getting these. What sequence were you doing? So the one with the solar sailor, they call like this Uh, transport ship mm -hmm. where where they're like running away from the bad guys and And they're going to the big recognizer. Yeah. 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 And so we got all the assets from from digital domain and they were insane, like just (laughs) crazy detailed and all all that stuff. But we had to shade them and texture them and like eventually render them. And there was a stereo show as well. Yep. So um, we were rendering just 2K. It wasn't even 4K. Um, But just the CPU power just wasn't, you know, what it is today. And like, I think my, my workstation had like 16 gigs of RAM. Right. And this is the and, earlier know, days of this, V-Ray for Maya was only maybe two years old or at, yeah, at that time. It was yeah. pretty fresh, but <laughs> quite capable. Yeah. Pretty fresh, yeah. but quite To do capable. Tron. <laughs> yeah. And I, I actually remember reading your articles about the shading, what you called universal sampling. Yeah. Um, and, and like how it was working. And I, and I was like trying to like match that and stuff. And, um, yeah, and we just had the hardest time rendering that show because it was it was the renderer's worst nightmare. Yeah. It was dark, it was glossy, it was reflective like crazy, like all the surfaces were different kinds of glossiness and reflectivity and all yeah. that stuff. And we didn't have a huge farm. So, yeah. you know, like 10 lighters went to submit however many shots and the farm would be busy for weeks. Yeah. And I was guilty of that too. Like I was like, this was uh, also in the day when there was still adoptive subdivision. 
people yeah. were using that for sampling. Yeah, oof, don't do that. <laughs> and um, so we, were, we had like all these arguments with, with like one another of what, what was better because it was flickering a lot, yeah. right? And um, I just remember like we, we, we were finally on the, on the left eye, right? And then mm -hmm. submitting the right eye as yeah. the secondary render. And we were like, okay, we got all these shots finaled. Let's submit the right eye. We have three weeks to deadline and we have like two and a half weeks of render time. <laughs> yep. And yeah. um, I, I don't know if you know Laszlo, but Laszlo, he was like a very talented technical director back uh -huh. at uh, Frantic and Prime Focus. Uh -huh. He actually wrote like a tool that looked uh, in, inside Nuke files and it like discovered which had the latest left eye and compared them with the right eye and triggered to submit the deadline the right eye for missing shots. It was pretty impressive. Wow. So nice. yeah, and so there were there were frames that were like basically running for like 24 hours and yeah. some of them would fail. Yeah. And, and I so had, what uh, would happen is I had a, I had a shot when we were on Oblivion, and uh, if you in Oblivion, I don't know if you you guys remember that, but there was the the the, the drones that would come by, and they had the big red eye, right? Yeah. And this was with same same thing with Joe Kaczynski, and Joe Joe Kaczynski knows V-Ray, you know, which is kind of funny. <laughs> so He's Joe, an old old Max guy, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, he yeah. used mental uh, mental ray and some stuff, and he used some V ray and stuff. But he knows he knows mm. his three D, uh, for sure. Mm. Uh, but he uh, uh, they wanted the drone eye to be completely physically accurate with. So we we got the actual <laughs> the actual mechanical one that the prop guys or the you know the the effects guys constructed and we like tried to like took wires to get the curvature of each part of the lenses so that when they move in and out they would do the stuff and so we had that and so it was like a big refraction nightmare thing you know to get all it's like a headlight shot in the thing it was mm -hmm. so complicated but uh, eric barba did not want it to be like to us to cheat in any way so it's like just get it till it's final final quality and it was like a big the fireflies were everywhere right? so the only way we were going to do that was to actually just let it go for 25 hours of frame or something crazy like that and then yeah. after that uh the next versions of v-ray i think they they started introducing the ability to do this clamping on certain things and it would have Ooh. taken that render time down to five minutes if we had <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, I mean, like I, I was experimenting with Maxwell at the time when it just came out, and was yeah. like, everybody was like, "Oh my God, this new physical render," and I just I couldn't make it work. Like you, you had to set a render and you know come back the next day to see it. Right, it was like still really noisy, kind of cool looking, but still really really super noisy. So in the end, like it was just not usable. Yeah, unbiased um, rendering is not always a good way to go. <laughs> no, it's not. No. And um, I know V-Ray has like a BPT Tracer or whatever it's called. Yeah. Um, I honestly, I just don't even bother going in there. Like, why? <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's fine. That's fine. Okay, cool. So you were, so you're Prime Focus. You're working on Tron, Solar Slayer. I love that. Lo love that sequence. I love Tron. It was a great show. It was, it yeah, was very too. tough. Uh, uh, and it was, it was, there was a lot of, you know, uh, you know, complicated stuff going on, but it was really fun uh, doing that for sure. Yeah. Uh, and that was that one of your favorite shows to work on? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely for the same reasons. I mean, it was innovative, it was challenging. Um, I also, I wish I, like I used to approach things in a certain way where I always wanted to do the best possible job. So, sure. you know, if you ask me to shade something and texture it, I'll just, I'll try to make it as best as possible. But it actually is detrimental to the process of production, you know? I've spent a lot of time trying to make these assets look really, really good. And then the supervisor would see them and was like, nah, it looks wrong. You know, the textures are not like what I want them. Change them, go right. back, you know, and just burned a lot, a lot of time on that. And um, I wish I back then I already like was more experienced to understand that, hey, work loose, work rough, get stuff blocked in fast. Get them to see it and iterate on it and let them arrive to the look that they want. It's not the look that what you want. Sure. Um, and um, eventually we got there, but it, it would have been much, much easier. So big experience for sure. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah for sure. For sure. Okay. And so where did you go from there? Um, I think I uh, came back to um, Prime Focus for Final Destination 5. Okay. Uh, which was like another big of the project for them. Uh, and they did that bridge sequence where the Lionsgate bridge was collapsing. It was like in the beginning of the movie, it was like swaying and cars are falling into the water and people and so on. It was very ambitious, like very crazy project for, again, for the technology, for the, it just pushed the limits like crazy. And mm -hmm. um, when Tron, we did Tron in Maya, um uh final destination they did it in max mm. and max does not have referencing right you know xref is not referencing right uh, yeah, yeah. and and so they had those very talented guys like laszlo and eric they wrote like a full-blown reference system for max okay it was just unbelievable like it had the database and it had the latest assets and it would cash them and bring them in. It was just like, just insane, right? And we had Bobo there and Bobo was handling yeah. like a lot of pipeline and uh, deadline and like, I mean, I haven't worked in a facility since then that had th that kind of level of technical directors who were like just amazing, right? you know? They had like seven or eight technical directors just locked in one room um, and they were just writing like all this crazy stuff. And, um, I think they used Nyad for water sims. Mm. And with Nyad, it was like, like Maxwell, you, you set it to run a sim and come back a week later. <laughs> yeah. And there, there was a shot of like the whole bridge falling into the water with like this massive splash. And there was a lot of problems, a lot, a lot of issues rendering it and simming it and all that stuff. So, but it was also a stereo show. So all the rendering had to be done. Um, on two eyes. And uh, after that, I, I was so burned out. Um, we were working just insane overtime. And I think a lot of that overtime is, is related to the limitations of the technology, both on the software and hardware levels. Sure. I don't work nearly as much overtime now, even though we do a whole lot, a lot of work and a big variety of work, but it's always like, you know, Houdini can just do pretty much anything you throw at it. Right. Uh, 
sure, it takes a bit of time, but it's not comparable to what it used to take, you know? Yeah, I mean, you don't sit and wait for things as much as you used to. <laughs> not right? anymore, no. Yeah. And with, with, modern, with modern technology, like the CPU speed and the render speed and even the simming, like a lot of simming can be done on the farm or at least a part of it, mm -hmm. you know? So like, whereas before with Nyad, it was literally one guy with a box and he was just simming on his box. Right. You know? And uh, yeah, so after that, uh, I took a break and um, I went uh, to Technicolor. Oh, uh, okay. So Technicolor had a small VFX department that then got absorbed by MPC. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it was called Black Box or Toy Box before that. Um, okay. And it was, it was a really solid team, small team, like about 15 people. Um, and they were really like really good guys, really did like really great work. And I was lucky to work with them for a bit. Um, and after that, I think um, I was taking a lot more time off because I had kids. So uh -huh. I didn't have kids before. Yeah. I could work like whatever. But then I, I, got, uh, I got my son born and uh, suddenly I, I had other priorities. So I had to leave, you know. Right. And um, yeah, I, I kind of started shifting focus away from just dedicating everything to work, you know. Um, yeah. So uh, that, was, that was when I kind of like almost detached from like, I used to be like crazy about learning and, and like exploring new things and couldn't wait to come back the next day to check the renders and stuff. And when I started like, when my family grew and I started like, my son was growing and I was like, that stuff no longer is important to me, you know, it's like other things. Right. <laughs> so, and, and not until like uh, a while after that, when he was older, that I kind of like started getting back into it. And by that time, I, um, I went to this company called LookFX. Oh, yeah. And they've opened up an office in Vancouver and uh, I worked with them for about a year and we were lucky to work on shows like Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that was like probably one of the best uh, experiences of my life, uh, working um, with Matt Krantz and Wendy Lanning. Uh, we had some really like talented guys there as well. Um, what were you and, working uh, on on Game of Thrones? Uh, we worked on season three and four. I believe. Oh, okay. Good season. And yeah. maybe five. I think it was three seasons. I think what happened was they had like this nine on one thing in season three. Okay. And we helped them out and they were like, okay. So then they just gave us like some work on season four and five. Okay. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't like big work like dragons or anything like that, like Pixamonda did. But it was uh, decent enough that, you know, we enjoyed working on it. And, um, you know, it was also a good experience and a good show to work on. So everyone was happy, you know. Sure. But then uh, LookFX kind of ran into a bit of a uh, problem and uh, they had like financial issues. And um, I think they, they expanded way too fast. Like they had so many offices so soon. Like they opened like a couple of offices at the same time. And then um, something happened with like 
a couple of projects and they just couldn't they couldn't survive and we were like one of the last offices to kind of operate before completely shutting down hmm. um, and after that i went to ilm oh okay so ILM i Vancouver. worked at ilm yeah but not for very long i think it was like a six months contract on warcraft oh, okay yeah yeah um and you know when i came to ilm they were using Max and Vire for their environments and gen department, which was kind of like felt at home, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, I really liked working there and everything, except that I, I wasn't really interested in working in the big studio anymore. Right. You know, I think if, I, if ILM came to Vancouver like 10 years before, I'd be all over that. Right. But... At the time, like I already had my daughter and my son and, uh, you know, like I just, I couldn't spend 10, 12 hour days in the office um, right. like everyone else. And I, I was like, I'm probably going to go to a smaller studio or start something of my own. And that idea came where I was like, hey, maybe I can do like some small visual effects for, you know, small shows that are happening in town, you know, shows that... Um, can't really afford ILM or whatever. Uh, and they are looking for like creative ways on making the VFX um, and uh, not necessarily need like a full big studio or like a mid-sized studio or something. So I started exploring that idea and um, there was some interest with that. But I was kind of like working a little bit on my own and then a little bit at the studios and then again, a little bit of my own. So like, during breaks on projects in studios, because you know how it is, like sometimes they have two, three projects and then they might not have something for like a couple of months. So you, normally you just take the time off. Uh, but during that time off, I was working on my own. Um, and as I was doing that, it was like acquiring more and more interest about doing that. So then uh, I think like 2015, I was like, I'm just going to try to do this full time. And uh, it was kind of just like your garage setup where I had a couple of uh, render nodes in my garage and then a couple of workstations in my office. And uh, my kids were running around and I was rendering and doing stuff. And it was a bit crazy, but uh, also kind of cool. Yeah. And I, I realized something. I realized that um, family is very important to me and I could also work and spend time with my family during the day, which I couldn't do that before. Yeah. So if I was in the office for 12 hours for like seven day weeks for, I don't know, a couple of months, I would just not, never see them. Yeah. But here I could work from home and take like an hour lunch or whatever during day, uh, and spend time with my family um, and then go back and work in the evening or something like that some, some more, you know? Right. So it, I, I'm not saying like it was like completely easy and there was definitely a challenge, you know, with the kids not running into your uh, office and just creating this, this crazy moment. But right. uh, I, I figured like I'd, I'd try and work like that for a while. And uh, it, just, it just started going more and more and more. And then when the pandemic happened, everyone started working from home at least for, for a certain time. Um, and um, I was already set up to do that. And right now, I think um, we have like this sort of influx of work. 
and those who were like set up and prepared for it ahead of time kind of got the benefit a little bit yep um because a lot of my friends started working from home and they were like this is insane like i can't deal with it this is crazy right. i can't focus you know and all that stuff and for me and for my artists it was like pretty much like every other day so right yeah i i I didn't know what I was going to happen when the pandemic happened, you know, and, and, and how we were going to deal from home. And then I meet it for now. Everyone's going to be different. And I'm sure you'd agree with this, but, uh, I felt like suddenly I didn't have to drive to work. That's two hours of my day or two and a half hours from my kids. Cause I live in Los Angeles that I didn't have that I had back to myself and then lunch with your kids is kind of fun, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly what I felt. The exact same thing. Yeah. And uh, it's it's hard to explain it to people who don't have kids, you know, and who are like really hard working people that they're so committed that they're like, no, I got to be at the office. This is where I get all my work done. And that's fine. Um, but when you have kids and you kind of you shift the priorities there and you also have le less time. Right. So mm -hmm. like you said, you gain two hours and those two hours are a lot of time. It's really valuable. Yep. Um and, and it's, it's like, I've been asked to come back to various studios uh, very often. And I, I just run the numbers and where I live right now, it's like an hour or more from, from the offices as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to go there, have lunch, couple of uh, meetings, couple of breaks, and then come back. That's like four hours to spend eight hours in the office. Right. You know, and I just, I have better things to do during the day <laughs> yeah yeah we're at that age so it's yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. it's but yeah. i you know and that's okay i mean things are eventually going to go back to uh you know more flexibility but i i think that one thing that the pandemic did prove is that th this is possible and so therefore Ooh. we're going to be able to continue to take advantage of that uh at least i hope you know and not pretend like you know i should you know, maybe I'll go to work once a week, mm -hmm. you know, Friday, something yeah. like that, you know? Yeah. Uh, so that's the way I, I see it at this point. But, uh, but yeah, it's great. It's great. And I really like how you're, you know, you've, you've prioritized your life, but you're still enjoying everything. You're getting the best of both worlds. You're getting to enjoy what you do and also spend as much time with your family as possible. So that's, that's kind of nice. Yeah. I do. I do feel, I do feel lucky, luckier than uh, some people because, you know, I kind of enjoy uh, working and doing what I do for work. Um, and that's something that like, you know, you ask an average person, like, do you enjoy crunching those numbers in your bank? You know, and they're like, eh. Right. You know? So, yeah. Sorry, my, my, my camera went out, but that's all right. You yeah. Can, you can man manage without it. I just, I, I, I forgot to plug it into the backup battery, but that's okay. Oh, no worries. <laughs> Well, that's, that's cool. That's cool, Dimitri. I mean, this is really, really interesting. And, and, and I really, you know, think it's, it's fabulous that you're, you're doing this and you've done always great work and I've always admired your, your, your enthusiasm. And you are definitely a very important part of the, uh, of the V-Ray and chaos history, uh, in terms of how we, how we got to where we are today. So that's really awesome. But what are you thinking? What are you thinking about the future? I mean, obviously like, you know, we know, you know, you've, you found a, you found a good way to balance your work and your life to, uh, at the same time. What's your thoughts on the future of, of where we want to go? 
Well, um, I think a couple of things. Like even since uh, early 2000s, I was kind of hoping that the GPU rendering will be the thing, and that it'll allow it'll allow us to work less. If if you know what I mean, like right. You know, like you wait for the render and when you wait for the render, you kind of like, you can't do anything. You have to wait. And I was hoping that, you know, the GPU will kind of render so, so fast. It'll basically be real time rendering. And then it'll allow you to do way more stuff in a lot of, like a lot less time. But still like the, there is sort of like this curve that's happening, right? Like the hardware is getting faster, but the demand is getting higher at the same time, like rendering 4K, you know, rendering 60 FPS or whatever it is, you know, and I've got like a pretty fast GPU, but still I can't render in real time. And uh, that's something that I really wish or that I'm still looking forward to, you know? Um, maybe one day we have either a GPU or a CPU that, that is so fast that, you know, instead of like clicking and waiting for the geometry to compile and for the textures to get loaded yeah. and for the displacement to get sampled or whatever it is, and then the buckets to show up and do their thing, you just, you don't click anything. It's just, it's there, you know, and you just right. switch cameras, like almost like Unreal, you know, Unreal, you don't really... You don't render, right? It's kind of, it's already there. Right. Um, but that's still a rasterized uh, render. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah. But that's sort of the idea is that, and, and Unreal is kind of an interesting thing on, on its own because like everybody is saying, oh, it's going to replace, you know, your conventional, conventional visual effects. But I don't think so at all. Um, well, because... Uh, I I think it's going to have a huge impact. I think Unreal may have a huge impact, or not just Unreal, all all real time engines and game engines will have a huge impact on the on the visual effects world, but not necessarily for their rendering. <laughs> They're really yeah. great a great way of assembling things. There's a lot of power that they have to do they can do because if it wasn't for some of the things that are going on in Unreal and Unity, uh, uh, virtual production is not going to be around. I mean. Look how far they got with Motion Builder, and that was a you know that was a program that <laughs> did nothing for years, and now mm-hmm. finally they have something capable going on. I, I I think that there's there's a lot of interesting things, but not necessarily just for the rendering. I feel I still feel, and and I'm I'm sure you would back me up that full ray tracing is still ultimately the goal of of a final image, right? Yeah, yeah, and and it's still ways to go, and but I'm I'm certain that we will get there. Yeah, it's just it's a lot harder than we would you know we were, we were thinking about like when we were getting the gpus and we we're like hey it's got three thousand cores it's gonna render so so fast but it just doesn't scale like that at all you know and right. uh, maybe in 10 15 20 years who knows how long it will take but uh, ultimately i think it, it might be even my kids like my son he's really interested in unreal and he's learned it and uh learning it every day he's like just you know setting up stuff in there and maybe he will get to enjoy that kind of uh, benefit where you know 20 years from now i'm already done with rendering and all that stuff but he's completely into it yeah well I hopefully i think it's gonna be much sooner than 20 years when things change. yeah but I, I i i don't know I, it's true though it's great i mean it's really cool and look at this i mean you like you said you're at home and you're teaching the next generation and they're they're learning from a new place right I mean, that's yeah. the think about when you were learning on that 
286 <laughs> trying to say, how do I make this game look like it is? And now, you know, your son is sitting there and playing in Unreal. That's kind of awesome if you really think about it, right? There's a lot Pretty of time awesome, between. Right? Yeah. There's what, 20 years between those two times, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, yeah. But I mean, technology, you know how it is. Like technology just, it skyrockets, right? Like it's exponential growth. Right. And um, the CPU that we have today is going to be like overpowered by CPU like a couple of years from now that's going to have like 500 cores or something, you know? Right. Um, and that's that's been the case so far with every previous uh, generation of CPU and GPU for that matter as well, right? Right. So, you know, now we have GPUs with... 24, 32 gigs of RAM, and in 48. some years we'll have, <laughs> yeah, right? So, uh, yeah. Um, like, I when I build my workstations, I kind of like go full out because I know that the power is needed to, to do the work that we need is, is like very demanding, right? So, sure. I build, I build a workstation and I get like the best hardware that I can get. And then look at that workstation five years from now. And the hardware is just laughable. Right. You know, so um, hopefully in the next five years. There could say, also be a big shift. I mean, there could also be a big shift. I've been seeing, you know, I've, I try to follow as much as possible. And I do a lot of great testing. Obviously, I work very closely with NVIDIA. And I, I'm very fortunate they gave me all of their latest hardware to test. So I have some very, very powerful hardware <laughs> that I get mm. to play with, uh, which is nice. But, you know, if you think about also what's going on, you know, with Apple, for example, and that, you know, and I'm not necessarily a big Apple fan at boy at all, uh, but that M1 chip is kind of interesting. And that if, if, if that idea of a new kind of way of thinking about a system on chip like that takes off and everything sort of becomes a little bit more centered around that area that could be interesting because it would completely change the way you think about hardware <laughs> you know what i mean i i agree and i think like um s- sort of uh, current hardware co- configurations are kind of like the old school cars right you know then tesla comes along and it's like completely different and innovative and it's better and i think like the electric technology even though it's really like new after some time, it's going to be the future. And, you know, we have the current sort of established expectation that you have a CPU, you have a motherboard, then you plug in the video card into it, and some RAM modules. It's right. kind of, it looks pretty primitive and obsolete to me, you know? Yep. Uh, <laughs> so who's to say that, like, you just maybe have to think outside the box a little bit and come up with something that's like, integrates everything together yeah. at, at a different level or something that is then so much faster and then you don't need all these extra components. Exactly. And, yeah. I mean, think about the bottleneck of the GPU is, 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 is the bus between the CPU and the GPU. But if you yeah. eliminate that and then it's all the same thing, then it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know? Or you just, you know, the GPU, like the whole idea that it's just meant for graphics kind of actually went against it a little bit, I think, because sure, NVIDIA makes them for games and, and those kind of things. And some of the other GPUs that they make are like the um, more of like a supercomputer type, sure. right? But they're not really accessible to consumers. Like, you know, even myself, like I can't get those really expensive 
like $10,000 cars or whatever. Yeah. Um, but if they made them so that they are versatile, that they're not GPU basically, but almost like a CPU that they can handle everything and it's easy to write stuff. Because like a lot of times when there is a problem with the GPU render, let's say, and you write it on, on the Chaos uh, forum or, or and say like, hey, so-and-so feature doesn't work. And the reply is, oh, it's because it's hard to write stuff for the GPU. Right. Or, or it's, hard, it's hard to make it work with the GPU. Right. Never hear that about the CPU, right? Right. And I, I think like if NVIDIA kind of like opened up and just kind of modified how they make things and made it so that it's, it's not a GPU that's just for the graphics, I think that would, you know, broaden that spectrum a lot. Well, they, I mean, they are trying to, we've, we work with them very closely. So we, we definitely have, you know, things that we've gotten in there, uh, in their features and they're both in the hardware and their, their drivers and their settings that, that, that have benefited. Mm -hmm. So our relationship with NVIDIA has gone on for a very long time, uh, and generally pretty good, but you're right. It is a challenge and it is a different render and it's a different way of thinking. And it, and those challenges, sometimes are not necessarily present when you're doing CPU rendering, for sure. No, and, and it's kind of like why I've uh, I kept an eye on the GPU, but mm -hmm. I've never like decided, okay, today I'm switching to GPU and never looking back. Right. Um, I've gotten the fastest cards that I could get and did the test renders with them. And sure, some things they render really, really quickly, like substantially faster, mm -hmm. but you know, you probably know this very well. When you put something really insane on the GPU, like a complex scene with you know, hundreds of subdivision objects and displacements and, and thousands of textures, it, that's it, you know, and uh, <laughs> there's a RAM problem. Yeah, yeah. Especially if, you know, it's 24 gigs of RAM so, or 12 gigs of RAM, whatever you happen to have, is, you, can, you can chew that up pretty quickly. Uh, especially exactly, when CPU right? RAM yeah. is cheap, you know, it's like, yeah. And, and, um, uh, I think I was talking to someone on the forum about that. And I said, I just upgraded my farm and I went from 64 gigs to 128 gigs and it cost me like $3,000 right. for, for the whole farm, <laughs> 10 machines. Yeah. For 10 you know? machines. Yeah. Yeah. But can you do the same with the NVIDIA card? No. Right. Well, well, no, you'd have to you buy, you, well, you, the, the, the problem, you know, if I've heard this from other students, the problem is that these cards, they keep getting better and better and better, which is great, you know, and every year they're getting better. But that also means you've got to buy new cards every year. <laughs> and that's yeah, expensive. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's expensive. Yeah. And like, like, um, I don't know, RTX 3090 or, or. Oh, impossible to find right now. Yeah. It's impossible to find. It's a different problem. But let's say if it was, it's still like a, almost a $2,000 card. Sure. And you need like at least 10 of them to get something rendered, right? And right. Um, uh, so basically $20,000 just... And then two years from now, some new car comes out that's just yeah, you three times 20... faster. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And that's exactly what happened with these cards. Like there's, you know, cards that you had from two generations ago are the, the, the new cards now are so good that they're five, six times faster than the pre, than the ones you bought two years ago. And so you definitely feel like, you know, you're missing out. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, for sure. But it's, I think it's a trap because, you know, you commit, you buy them and then later these new cards come out. 
then you buy those and then later same thing happens whereas with the cpus like you can buy like powerful cpus and they'll be good for the next five years well um, you can say that or you can also say that cpus don't don't progress anymore right and gpus do so yeah <laughs> So, I mean, there's a lot of ways to look at it, but at the same time, there are some big innovations. What you know, the AMD GPU uh, CPUs out there are crazy good right now. You know, I've yeah. got one with 128 threads on it. That's insane. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the so. Threadripper three, right? That's the same that I have, and it was the first AMD that I bought in like 20 years. Yeah, because yeah. there is no comparable Intel at the same price point. Mm -hmm. There's just none, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think AMD is not finished. Like they're building, I think, 256 Maybe. thread now. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's a big CPU. Like when you look at it, it's pretty large. Yeah, it's chunky. <laughs> but whatever, it, it, it works, right? It gets yeah. the job done. I mean, like all my other machines, all the farm machines that I have are all Intel. And uh, they are E5s, like pretty fast. But the Threadripper is at least two times faster than any of them. Right. Yep. And and the versatility, like th that's the bottom line. I can render hundred gig of RAM scene on it, or I can render hair, or I can render particles. I can render Phoenix Sims. Yeah, everything's gonna work. GPU. Yeah. I don't know if some of it, like you know, you 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 set up the pipeline, you start, you get into the rendering, and then something doesn't work. It's just not not supported, right? Right. And. Um, and then you're like, oh crap, now I gotta go back and roll back or redo it or something. And that's something you don't wanna be doing, right? Sure, sure. Yeah. So. For sure, dude. Well, this is awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for uh, for coming down, for you know talking to us. And it's been awesome to have you on the podcast. I'm really glad that you know uh, uh, Anna was able to suggest this and make this happen. So I was like, oh, great idea. She goes, what do you think about doing a podcast with Demetrius? Like, I don't know why I didn't think of this. So, <laughs> so it's really, really great to to have you on, and uh, and no, definitely let's really let's fun. let's try to let's try to get together at some SIGGRAPH or at some point. We all we will be able to reconnect at some yeah. point and, have, and share a beer. Yeah, that'd when, be great. When, when this this whole thing passes, man, for sure, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds great. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot thanks for doing for this. Me.